We're reading from Genesis 4, um, verse 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of Lord, of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain bought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also bought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and this offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you have worked the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thanks, Drew. I'm going to invite Reuben now to come forward to uh, preach God's word to us. So, thanks, Reuben. I'll hand over to you. Well, good morning. It's really nice to be with you. Uh, my name is Ruben. Uh, my wife, Sean, and my little boy, Ravi, uh, we're really glad to be here with you. Uh, we're in Launceston Reformed Church this year, uh, doing a sort of a, a final placement apprenticeship uh, to finish my training to become a pastor. Uh, I'm glad to open up Genesis 4 with you now. Uh, let's pray again before we look at this. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that through it you promised to speak to us uh, to show us wonderful things, important things, things that will make a big difference in our lives. And we pray that you would do that now, and we pray that most of all, you would show us your beautiful son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to tell you about my friend, Johnny. Uh, Johnny's face, it lights up with a smile when he tells me about how far he has come. You know, just five years ago, he'd been a bit of a lost cause. He was 
He was studying to be a lawyer. Uh, he was greedy for success. Uh, he had parties on weekend, bit of a potty mouth, bit of a drinking problem. But, I mean, since Johnny became a Christian, his whole life has turned around. I mean, now he reads Christian books on the weekend and he loves coming to church. Of course, Johnny doesn't have it all sorted yet. He still struggles with sin sometimes. Sometimes he gets a bit angry with his family. But, but overall, Johnny can see how far he's come. He's very thankful. He's thankful that he has left that life of sin behind him. And now he's looking forward to teaching others everything that he's learned. He's thinking he might even become a minister one day. Well, I don't know if you've ever met Johnny. He, he's a nice guy, but he's terribly naive. You know, it's really good that he's not living such an immoral life anymore, but Johnny is terribly naive because he's tempted to think that his sin problem is mostly dealt with now. Now that he's a Christian, now that he reads Christian books and listens to sermons, when he thinks about sin, it's mostly about who he used to be, or it's about how other people around him are living. But I'm concerned that Johnny might be in more danger than he realizes. In fact, I kind of wish he was here with us today as we look at Genesis 4. Because this passage in front of us has something really important to say about sin. It's something that we all need to hear whether we're new Christians, whether we're not Christians, whether we've been Christians for 50 years or more. In this passage, we have to deal with the question, how serious is this thing called sin? In the chapter just before this, Genesis 3, we read about Adam and Eve's fall into sin. You know the whole you know, sort of devil, apple, curse situation? And so we're coming into chapter 4 with a question lurking in our minds. What kind of mess are we dealing with? What should we make of this sin problem? Is it just a bit of spilt milk on the carpet? Is it more like a car bomb in a shopping mall sort of a problem? Well, the story begins with glorious optimism. Cain is the first baby to ever be born and he's cute eve holds her baby up and she's overjoyed and she praises god she's very happy to have brought forth pardon the pun a little boy called cain his name sounds like the hebrew word for brought forth but what type of boy has she brought forth the baby seems cute and innocent but we can't help but wonder has the sin of his parents come out in the wash or have they passed it down the line? Well, time passes. Cain's brother Abel is also born. Uh, they grow up and find work. Abel's a sheep farmer. He's probably got a New Zealand accent. But Cain, he works the ground. Uh, he's growing fresh produce to sell at the local all-organic farmer's market on Saturday mornings. And then one day, Cain and Abel, they come and they bring their offering to God. We aren't told what's going on here, but it seems like God's asked them to do this. They bring their offerings to God to thank Him for blessing them. And they bring an offering that matches their occupation. So Abel brings sheep and Cain brings fresh produce. And then we read these shocking words. Have a look in verse 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. What's going on here? Why did God accept Abel and reject Cain? 
Some think it's because God prefers sheep to fruit and veggies, but that doesn't fit with what we see in the rest of the Bible. Some people think the answer's there in verse 4, because Abel brought fat portions and a firstborn lamb. In other words, Abel brought his best, whereas maybe in verse 3, Cain just brought some leftovers. Well, it's hard to be sure what's right. Because actually, it's pretty vague, isn't it? As I read the passage, I feel like something's missing. I want to know what Cain did wrong. But then I ask myself, what if the ambiguity is actually intentional? What if that is precisely what makes the story so powerful and even so scary? Because to those of us looking on, both Cain and Abel are doing exactly the same thing. And yet God is going to welcome one and he's going to reject the other. They're both religious. Did you notice that? They both came to church with their offerings, singing and praying. So this is something we need to pay attention to, isn't it? This is relevant for people like you and me sitting in church. How do we know where we're at with God? How do we know if God is smiling on us this morning or if he has turned his face away? That brings us to the next part of the story, verses 5 to 7. Have a look there, second part of verse 5. This is a really important verse if we want to see what's going on here. It says, So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Why is Cain so angry? He's angry because God has rejected his offering. I can't believe I did this for you, God, and that's how you respond. Why aren't you blessing me, God? I dedicated my life to serving you, God. You respond by giving me cancer? I'm still single, God, because of your rules. Couldn't you at least provide me with a spouse? I've spent my whole life trying to be good enough for you, God. I've always obeyed my parents. I never did drugs. I volunteer on three different rosters at church. What more do you want from me? It's easy to think that God is cruel and stingy, isn't it? I mean, at least Cain tried. He's not perfect, but none of us are. Have a look at how God responds. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? God says, really, Cain? Really, Reuben? You're really angry with me? Whose fault is it? Is it mine or yours? You didn't do well, and now you're blaming me? You came with this half-hearted offering. You didn't come humbly or thankfully, but with a sense of entitlement and self-righteousness and pride, and you're surprised that I didn't accept you. Who do we think God will welcome? Someone who struts into his throne room, a bit of swagger, casually hands over $200 of cash and says, you're welcome, I know it's a lot, but I'm a generous guy. Or someone who comes timidly into the room and quickly drops to their knees, clutching the $200, barely daring to give God such a small amount, such a puny gift to such a glorious king. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, 
we're told that Abel's offering pleased God because he brought it by faith. That is, Abel came to God saying, thank you so much for blessing my work, for giving me my flock. This is an offering to express my gratitude. I know it's not much. I know that really it all came from you anyway, all my gifts, all my abilities. I'm just here to to humble myself before you and say thank you. You are such a generous and gracious God. And if God was to respond and not be pleased with that offering, how should we respond to that? Surely we'd say, I'm sorry, God. Teach me to do better. So Cain's response here is pretty telling. There's a test here for us. There's a test. If you want to know whether your heart is humble and thankful before God or bitter and self-righteous, then look at how you respond when your sin is exposed. When your spouse or a close friend pulls you up on something you've done wrong. When the preacher opens God's word and points to your sin. How do you react? Do you admit it? Or defend yourself? Do you apologize or do you start to justify? Do you feel sad or do you feel angry? Well, we've seen that sin runs deep under the surface. But now God has more to say to Cain. Look at verse 7. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Uh, When I was a kid, we had a family cat. I was a fluffy, sweet child hunter. It would hide in the bushes next to the garden path, and an innocent little toddler would come wandering up, and the cat would just come flying out of the bush in a full airborne assault. And I still remember the red scratches on my sister's legs. I heard recently of a man who had already sat down on the toilet he realized that coiled in the bowl beneath him was a long, black, writhing, hissing snake. Sin is personified in this verse as if it were a beast, crouched just outside our doors, poised, ready to pounce if it just opens a crack like a lion quivering, front paws lowered, back arched, swaying ominously about to pounce on its prey. Sin is a beast that desires you. It wants to rule over you and control you, not for your good, but for your ruin. How do you tend to think of sin? I quite like it. I'm like a mouse, nibbling the cheese as it lies spring-loaded in the trap. I just want to snack, dabble, flirt with sin. I like to think that I could share a few complaints about that person at church without becoming a gossip or a grumbler. I like to think I could watch a TV show with one or two dodgy scenes but, but still have a pure mind the next day. I like to think that my quiet desire for attention and praise, uh, it's not really going to interfere with my ministry, is it? God says to Cain, you have no idea what's lurking in your soul. 
you have no idea how toxic and dangerous this beast called sin is. That incident with your parents in the Garden of Eden, that was not just a whoopsie. That was treason against your loving, amazing creator and ruler. It's interesting that God says Cain has a choice. Will he rule over sin? It's not but choosing between being perfect, sinless or not. It's a choice between having a humble, repentant attitude towards sin or an attitude of sin-excusing and ego-stroking. We have a choice about how we respond to, that, to sin. Today, we have a choice. And look at how gracious God is here. Gently rebuking Cain, teaching him, warning him. God wants us to take our sin seriously. He wants to protect us from its consequences. He doesn't want to let anger turn into violence, or lust turn into adultery, or frustration turn into grumbling, or disappointment turn into bitterness. Well, how will Cain respond? What choice will he make? The answer comes in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. What an escalation. The first murder in human history. A brother killing his own brother a precious human life made in God's image, snuffed out, gone. There's a lifeless body, there's, there's blood, there's a funeral, there's a weeping heart, broken mother, there's a, a family torn apart. Isn't verse 8 tragic? The way it follows directly on from verse 7, Cain, don't let sin rule over you, it's dangerous. But Cain doesn't leave his sin behind. He loves it, and he nurses it, and he feeds it, and the beast comes alive. When we open the door to sin, when we justify it, or coddle it, or flirt with it, or, or make peace with it, look what can happen. We started out with an impure offering. Then there was anger. Then jealousy than hatred, than murder. It's like a slip and slide covered in soap. Once you start, it's hard to stop. You might be thinking, well, I don't know. Sin hasn't really been that destructive in my life. Certainly never driven me to murder anyone. I mean, maybe Cain is just a bad egg. Uh, listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in uh, The Screwtape Letters. This is, this is a fictional letter. This is a, this is a senior devil, and uh, he's writing a letter to a junior devil. And he says this, You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is not better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. 
the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Have you noticed how sin poisons our relationship to God? Have you felt that feeling of distance, spiritual pessimism, less intimacy, less joy, less desire to do good? Well, we began by seeing that sin runs deep under the surface. We saw that sin desires to control us. Now we see that sin has terrible consequences. It's terribly destructive. And we're left asking, okay, now what? <laughs> where's, this, where's the happy ending in this story? Well, let's pick up the action in verse 9 as God confronts Cain. God sees everything, every single sin. He comes to Cain to extract a confession, and Cain responds, God, you were right. I have ruined everything. I'm a wretched screw-up. I desperately need your help. Not quite. How should I know where my brother is? I'm not his babysitter. Have you noticed how Cain is so hungry for independence in the story. He doesn't want to be told what to do. He wants to play by his own rules. He wants to be free. And yet, ironically, in his pursuit for freedom, Cain has actually become a slave because the beast now rules over him. When we stray from God, we don't find freedom. We find the controlling power of sin. We might need to be reminded of that because we are surrounded by advertising that tells us to have whatever we want, to do what seems right, to pursue what makes us happy? Are we really free when we live like that? Or do we actually find ourselves becoming more unsatisfied and addicted and disconnected? In verse 10, God says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The murder screams for justice, Cain. And because I'm perfectly just, justice is what you'll get. The punishment will fit the crime. Cain didn't humbly acknowledge God, so now God humbles Cain. Cain failed to thank God for the veggies that grew out of the ground, so now the ground will be cursed so it doesn't bear produce. Cain failed to appreciate and love his brother, so now he's going to be forced to wander away from his family. And Cain can't bear it. <laughs> Verse 13, he says, someone's going to hunt me down and get revenge. I'm going to be killed. And God says, no, I'll protect you. I'll put a mark on you so that no one dares touch you. We don't know what this mark is. Some people think it was a tattoo. Some people think it was a haircut. We really don't know. What we do know that God shows Cain remarkable grace here. Cain deserves to die for what he's done, but God has mercy. God is so tender and gracious to undeserving sinners. And yet overall, this story, it is really a series of unfortunate events. It is just things going from bad to worse. In verse 16, Cain ends up further from Eden than his parents did even further from God's presence. 
the ground is more cursed for Cain than it was for his father Adam. This isn't just a rerun of the fall in Genesis 3. This is a development, a deterioration, a decline. Cain is a warning to us. If we continue in our sin, we keep coddling it, flirting with it, making peace with it, we will be further from God tomorrow than we are today. As Cain packs his bags and throws his swag in the ute, the blood of his brother Abel soaks into the ground and cries to God. It cries for justice. We still hear this cry today. Sometimes we cry it out ourselves. The cry for justice when women are mistreated. The cry for justice when children are enslaved around the world to do manual labor. But while the cries of these terrible things echo in our ears and stir our passions, there's another more muffled cry. Perhaps it's more of a whimper than a cry. In fact, if you aren't paying attention, you might not hear it at all. It's the cry for justice because of our own sins. Our sins scream for justice. And God, the good, the perfect wonderful ruler of the universe he hears that he hears the scream and the sound waves they merge together layers upon layers turning into a deafening wail a screeching wall of sound and god hears it all so much sin and then god hears another voice even as the sprinkled blood of abel cries out punish them, another cry is heard. It's the sprinkled blood of Jesus and it cries out, forgive them. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 24. We have now come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see what this is saying? Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Because instead of bringing condemnation, it brings forgiveness. If you trust in Jesus, His blood cries out for you this morning. It cries in the Father's ear, forgive Him. Forgive her, Father. I shed my blood for them. Justice has been done on the cross. Don't curse them, Father. They're my brothers and sisters. I was murdered for them so they could be forgiven, so they could be born again in the Spirit, so they would no longer be enslaved to the beast of sin, but be free to serve and love God. I have to ask you, have you put your trust in Jesus? If you haven't, what's going to happen on that day when you stand before a righteous God and your sins are crying out for justice. I want to urge you this morning, admit the seriousness of your sin. Stop justifying it. Stop hoping that just coming to church is going to be enough and trust completely in what Jesus did on the cross. Perhaps some of you feel defiled by guilt again this morning because you've fallen into sin again. Know this, that 
that the blood of Jesus cries out to God, forgive them because they're united to me and my righteousness is theirs. Perhaps some of us have been making peace with sin, trying to hold hands with both, sin on one side, God on the other. How can we continue like that? Knowing that Jesus spilt his blood for us. What a saviour we have. He was murdered for us. He bore our curse. He was driven from God's presence instead of us so that we could be adopted as his brothers and sisters. Sealed, protected with the Holy Spirit. Strengthened to fight and overcome the sin beast that lives in us. And one day, one day soon, that internal struggle with sin will be over. We'll be free. What a saviour. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are sobered when we read the Cain and Abel story. Uh, because we realize sin isn't something little and fluffy, something we can keep on a leash. Lord, it's a beast. And it's subtle and it's powerful. And many of us here have realized that at various points in our lives. Maybe we thought we were going okay. And then sin broke into our lives and led us far away from you. Lord, we acknowledge that on our own we are powerless, we are guilty, and we pray that you would forgive us, that because of the blood of Jesus, you would wash us clean. Thank you that in you there is righteousness, there is healing, there is hope, that those sins that once enslaved us no longer have the power over us. That we can say no, that we can choose purity, that we can draw near to you, nearer and nearer every day. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us close to you as we fix our eyes on our beautiful Savior, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.